Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Aesthetic Insider Radio. This is your host, Angela O'Mara. Today we're going to be speaking with Professor James Frame, who is an internationally recognized for his academic leadership in plastic and reconstructive medicine and is a pioneer and early adopter of a procedure called Elevate that is really taking off and attracting massive attention here in the U.S., Professor Frame is based in UK, the UK, England, and um, I'm really excited to have you on the show today, Professor Frame, and welcome to Aesthetic Insider. Pleasure to be here, Angela. Absolutely. Well, before we, we get going talking about Elevate and the ICLED neck defining suture procedure, as it is uh, known um, in the UK, you know, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and, uh, and your practice in England. Sure. Um, I'm a professor of aesthetic plastic surgery at the medical school, which is at the Anglia Ruskin University in Chelmsford, Essex. It's um, a sort of post I've had for about the last seven or eight years, and it follows on from a career in the National Health Service where I became a full-time consultant, if you like, in 1990. Uh, my main interest in those days were uh, serious burn injuries and trauma, reconstruction, cancer, um, breast cancer particularly, um, but I also uh, inherited a, a large private practice. Um, so in 2000, I left the National Health Service and uh, spent my time in the private sector doing a lot of cosmetic surgery and realized that there are big gaps in our knowledge and also in our training, um, and it was recognized by the university that we needed to start some sort of training program for plastic surgeons in aesthetic surgery, and hence my appointment. Um, and we've had quite a few trainees go through. Uh, incidentally, the first trainees I took through the course were, were using um, this technique uh, on neck, so they are actually trained in this procedure. Um, there are very few, um, uh, actually in the United Kingdom, that are aware of it at the present time, but those that are aware of it have been waiting for this new device for, for about four years now. Uh, the tool itself we helped uh, get involved in Dubai and also in Hungary and there are people in both of those countries nation states that are actually very interested in how this develops particularly in the United States and so we're very excited by it. Absolutely well well let's just you know go into a bit more depth there on the the Elevate and the ICLED mm -hmm. neck defining sutures I know you call it how did you learn about it and become interested you know in 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 this procedure kind of from the beginning? Right, well, there's a group called the International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, of which I've been a member for many, many years. And it was around about 2008, I think, uh, I was uh, vi visiting uh, San Francisco uh, at a meeting, and I got an invitation from one of the uh, distributors in the United Kingdom, a guy called Peter Cranstone from Eurosurgical, who said, come on out to um, see Greg Muller who's demonstrating one of the patients he's just worked on with a neck. And it turns out it was a, 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 a Ted Gagliano's property, who's a, a very serious uh, in the film business, um, and he's a very resourceful, a very philanthropic sort of gentleman. Uh, and he very much supports research and new techniques. Uh, and he actually hosted uh, a meeting where I saw the results of uh, Greg's original tool uh, to lift up the hanging part under the submentum or the um, below the jowl, if you like, on the neck and lower jaw. Uh, and I was very impressed. Um, 
so I then thought, well, we've got to use this in the United Kingdom. And I invited Greg over to our hospital, and he demonstrated on a number of patients uh, in a very, very, very uh, expertly way uh, and sort of sold the technique to us. And then we used it, and I used it for a good few years and looked at my first 50-odd cases. And then I realized that there are times when his technique as is works very well. Uh, it works on young people. It works on people with pretty good skin. Um, but the original technique didn't really lift up the neck. It didn't really define the neck. So Greg and I, to some extent, it's all Greg's idea, um, but I sort of tried to help him along a little bit. We worked out that uh, a so-called neck-defining suture does actually lift and elevate the neck at the same time as giving it a, a really nice shape. So uh, at that point, we had the... Um, it was, it was called the eye guide, which was two uh, rods, fiber light rods, with a very long suture between, and it was quite a cumbersome device. Um, and often the light source wouldn't be quite as uh, effective as we'd like. Um, so, you know, I was a bit taken aback when Greg said, well, they're going to change and modify it. And by the way, the old eye, eye guide is gone it's because we haven't actually had it now for a few years, and we've been waiting for this new tool to come through. Um, and I happen to have seen the prototype a couple of years ago, and I know Greg's been using it for a good few years. So I thought I'd go over and visit him in um, in August, um, uh, which I did with my, my wife. And we went round and we had a good look uh, and, and watched him operate on, on uh, two very, very difficult cases. And he did it absolutely beautifully. And it's clear from that, plus the other things we were talking about and, and, and how he puts his suture in now, that he has modified the technique to, uh, and adapted it to fit into virtually all patients. However, um, he and I would both recognize there are certain people that need adjunctive treatments. So it's not yeah. just all about mm -hmm. the neck. Sometimes you have to include other procedures like little mini facelifts or some sort of facial tightening procedure, fillers, um, fat graft. Um, and I know he uses uh, energy uh, tools to try and tighten the skin um, you know, we use other little devices. So we, we, we can adapt the technique to fit in what our patient needs are. And really quite excited about taking it on, really, in the United Kingdom. As soon as we get the CE mark, we'll start going. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's really, I, I think it's a really exciting procedure. And everybody, you know, on this side of the pond, if you will, you know, the doctors I have, have spoken to um, and, and I know are now actively doing this in their practice are getting such a great response from patients, you know, for many reasons. Um, yeah. Just, just real quick, I would like to ask how, you know, from the from the beginning, um, and I know that you have been involved for, for many times and have actually helped to refine the procedure. How long, you know, did it take you to actually learn the technique? Oh, well, you think you know it straight away, but you don't, um, and it's very easy to get confused. Sorry, with the original yes. technique, it was very um, confusing with regards where the uh, next suture line would go and the angle and understanding what you were trying to do with your pull. Um, and, and in fact, it was too complex. It didn't need to be that complex. And the new Elevate procedure literally just involves uh, for five, seven, nine holes, really small little stab holes, um, and, and a portal to actually do a bit of liposuction to the uh, submental, the, the area of the chin. So uh, apart from those small little holes, it, it, and, and it's quite easy that you just follow one line to the next line, and, and the suture is easier to tie, uh, it just looks a better and more sim you know, simplified procedure. Uh, but you can actually see the way Greg has um, worked out the anatomy and worked out the direction of pull. 
that you're going to get that lower neck to pull up nicely. And that's the problem with virtually all other surgeries on neck. You don't necessarily solve the lower part of the neck itself. Greg's technique does that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's great. And then who would you say are the ideal candidates? I know you you know, you know, said like from the beginning it was a much more complex procedure yeah. and now it seems it's a procedure that can be suitable for, for people of all ages. But who would you say is the ideal the ideal patient? Yeah, the, the ideal would, well, mm-hmm. let, let's think about what your options are for neck at the moment. Um, you see, you know, I see patients, everybody sees patients that come in saying they're, 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 their jowls are the bit that bothers them. And then you look at them and you realize the jowls having dropped a bit, they, they then show a neck. If you just do a facelift, um, uh, the neck doesn't always come up with the face as well as you'd like. In fact, the evidence is that the face stays up well, but the neck comes back within three to six months. The neck means, you know, a hanging neck. Um, so you've got to do something with the neck. And the options at the moment include um, uh, extensive dissection undermining, high-risk surgery, uh, to just working on a submental, you know, a little incision underneath the chin, uh, releasing some tissues, taking some fat out, tightening up the uh, muscles of the neck, the patissimum muscle centrally, and then stitching up. But that always leaves you with a, a significant amount of lumpiness, often with irregularities that takes ages to settle down. Um, so, so you can be relatively aggressive, and, and the most minor things really don't solve the problem, which is the skin is in the wrong place. And if the skin isn't able to retract... Um, it won't retract, and therefore you end up with more hanging skin. So the idea of Greg's tool, I think, is to put the skin into a position where it's higher and therefore tighter, and therefore the aging skin, you can actually get a, you know, a very, very reasonable result with, with a good angle. The fallback is always the point that the skin didn't come in as well, well as you like, but you can still take it off. So you actually are doing something quite simple. Uh, you're, you're trying to get uh, you know, a great result, with least downtime and very low morbidity. You know, it's low-risk surgery with high reward, whereas the other surgeries are pretty high-risk and high reward. And of, of, of the options, obviously, the lower-risk one is the better option. Of course, of course. And I would think, too, with, with a lower risk, there's, there's lesser downtime, lesser post-recovery. Um, would you agree with that? Well, I think if you look at the, the videos, they're, they're real videos that I actually saw, and for my own eyes, I know that that is the case, and I know the way Greg's practice works. You know, the day after your operation, you're up and about, you, you know, apart from a little bit of tightness, you know, you don't look as though you've had surgery. You know, if you get the right sort of person that doesn't bruise, and that's young, and he's got to follow the instructions post-operatively, there's, there's very, very, very little downtime, and there's, there's no scars, really. The little needle holes that are used to insert the suture they disappear within you know, days. You can hardly see anything. And, and, and from what we've done, the only, the early cases we did, the, the, the biggest problem was always that we were pulling things too tight and making the skin rather irregular. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier the, the ICLED. Um, how is that? Um, can you kind of just talk for our listeners a little bit more about that and um, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit about the ICLED and, and kind of what it does in, in relation to this procedure. Yeah. Um, there are already um, in the medical literature sort of ideas where you can suspend the neck using sutures or mesh. Uh, what is different about Greg's technique is the suture is being placed in an anatomically defined area. And it's defined because... Um, the ICLED, the ICLED, uh, IC stands for implicit care and LED stands for LED light. 
So they put the two together. And what you have is a light source at the end of which is a, it's a long rod um, attached to a, a power source, which um, generates this rather sort of white light. And, and onto that rod is, is a suture. And you're using the rod to take the suture through in the plane that you want it to be in the neck. And the plane you want it to be in is between the skin and, and the muscle, the, the platysma muscle, which is the muscle that sort of bands up when you try and grimace. Um, and if you go uh, outside of the muscle, and by elevating that muscle, you're actually pulling everything that's behind it, and that includes the submandibular glands and all the lateral parts of the neck. You're actually almost like garroting the neck up into a position that's suspended between um, the two mastoid processes. Uh, and it is a basically a suspensory sling. But it's not one line, it's actually two lines. So it actually draws it and pulls it together and gives you the nice definition. Uh, and because you've sucked out the tissues above it, you, you, you're basically closing off the dead space. So therefore, there's less risk of you getting hematoma, uh, seroma, uh, and therefore there's less risk of infection and, and, and basically disaster. So it, it's a nice little technique. You're using a fiber light that, that glows white, yellow, when it's in the right plane. But if for any reason you were behind the muscle, it would, it would show brown or red. And if you're behind the muscle, you are not going to get any result. You know, you're in the wrong plane. And that's why it, it's got every advantage over other techniques that are doing it blindly. You're actually able to place it in the correct anatomical position. Hmm, brilliant, brilliant. Now, you mentioned that, you know, with the, the rod, that the suture is attached and therefore placed, you know, anatomically correctly in the right plane. Um, there's a lot of talk, you know, now, and there's, a, there's you know, all the facial procedures or the body procedures where, they, where threads are used. Um, can you explain kind of the difference between the suture and technique in this elevated procedure compared to yeah. threads, you know? Yeah, well, threads, um, threads are quite thick, fairly rigid bits of material. They're basically uh, suture material, which have got little semi-cuts made into them, um, and they're like little barbs. So the idea is if you insert this suture through the, through the tissues and you go in the right direction, the barbs aren't anchoring anything in. But when you pull it from the other end, it actually catches the tissues and pulls back as it, as it goes. And the more barbs you can get in there by a collective attachment, if you like, it, it can be quite strong. But there are certain tissues where the barbs won't hold. And when they do hold, sometimes on very, very thin people, they can actually tent and distort the whole facial anatomy. And in addition, you never really know what plane you're putting them. Um, and in fact, there have been quite a few quite serious litigation cases where the barb has actually caught nerve and, and one gets into trouble. Mm. Now, the, the, the suture to suspend the, the uh, thread lifts to try and lift up a neck are not going right the way across the neck in most instances. And if they did, they would actually be really, truly garroting the tissues. They're not working over a... a, a between two sutures, which is what the eye guide uh, or the ICLED does. And, and those threads themselves, the barbs will dissolve and they will give way in the tissues. Anything under tension gives way by and large. And the sutures mostly are dissolvable these days. So in other words, it's going to be a temporary phenomenon. And I don't know anybody that's got a, lot, a good long-term result from any barb type of facelift. Uh, virtually always it, it, its effect has gone, if there's any effect at all, um, at three months. Whereas with the uh, ICLED, you're expecting a result that's going to last the patient's lifetime because the suture we're using is non-dissolving, it's non-barbed, it adheres within the tissues, it becomes pretty solidly within there, and, and it's, um, it, it's pretty well um, 
uh, you know, hidden. There's no reason why it should ever be close to the skin because it's on the other side. It's, it's close to the muscle. Hmm. Now, the, you know, the Elevate procedure is a minimally invasive procedure that um, can be performed in the office with local anesthesia, from what I understand. Um, is it ever necessary for a patient to have full anesthesia? Uh, well, it depends which country you're in. Um, in the United States, uh, a lot of uh, aesthetic surgery is done in the so-called office. It's like office surgery. Uh, and office surgery um, is um, uh, you, you basically state the patient and then you give the local anaesthetic. So it's, it's slightly different than just the local anaesthetic itself. Um, the, the idea of the sedation is to, to make them unaware of what's actually going on, but they've got to be in a state of awareness where they can ask, you can ask and respond to questions. Um, and also, um, to, if, if somebody asks you to move your head, you can, you can turn it, but you probably won't have any memory of it. Now, in the United Kingdom, that's deemed sort of not safe practice because you have to have an anaesthetist present whenever you sedate and operate on a patient. And if you sedate to operate on a patient, the anesthetist isn't anywhere near the head end. They tend to get a wee bit upset because they feel as though they're not in control. And therefore, that's why they, they like to have control of an airway and also the, 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 you know, the, the drip in to make sure they have certain drugs and whatever. So it's a slightly different practice in our country as opposed to the United States. However, you know, in an office situation, um, there aren't, you know, we're, we're talking about in England, we have um, regular inspections, CQC inspections, we call them. Um, you have to have all the facilities in, in sight for crash uh, requirements for resuscitation. Uh, and if, if we were to do this type of surgery in an office upstairs, you know, I don't think we'd get the CQC um, certificate to allow us to practice that, that way. Okay. It is a different way of, of doing surgery. Um, I'm not saying we're safer or not safer, but just the way the different disciplines practice together. We have to have practicing surgeons, practicing anaesthetists, all approved by a hospital that are CQC inspected to be of the highest standard. The, you can't carry out that work otherwise in the United Kingdom. Um, and to do day surgery under sedation on your own as a surgeon puts you very much at risk and the patient more so at risk um, because surgeons by and large, if they're operating, don't really know what's going on with the airway. Now, I, I saw Greg operating and he actually observes best practice in that you can do sedation, you do technique, but he has an, an anesthesiologist, you call them in the United States, who was there supervising and monitoring and in control of the patient. Now, that's slightly different to what most practices could be in the United States. Um, so I would argue that you know, he's, he's doing the same sort of practice as we are in the UK. I, I know his video that he shows um, of a young man that he was doing the neck on was under sedation, and that's the way I've seen him operate as well. Um, he, he doesn't make the patient um, totally out of it. He, he is able to talk to patients. But there's a fine line between that and then being totally asleep and sort of like spending two hours doing surgery and not really aware that the patient isn't breathing. Um, and that's where the, you know, we, we feel as though we're better to be under some form of anaesthetic. But so to your question, you can do it under local anaesthetic with sedation quite easily um, and, and well. You can do it also the way we have to do it in the United Kingdom, which is with anaesthetic control, which usually means they have some sort of airway control. Now, if you ask me which way is the better way of doing it, I would say Greg's way. Because the trouble with having a tube down the throat uh, to keep somebody asleep is that it distorts the anatomy of the neck. And, and while they're actually asleep, um, you know, you have no real control of extension and flexion of the, of the head to see what's going on if you have a big tube down the, the throat itself. So you have to make allowances for that when you do the suture. In 
Greg's case, you'll, you'll see from his video, he is able to flex the patient's neck and extend it, and the patient will do it for him. Um, and that's actually a very good thing to do, to see. And, and certainly as an educational tool, it was, it was amazing. Well, that's interesting. Excuse <coughs> me, and actually brings me to a question which um, I hadn't really thought about until now. And, you know, I do, we have about 10 minutes left on the show, and I, I do want to talk a little bit more from the patient perspective. Um, but before we do that, given that you have different requirements, you know, in terms of, of the anesthesia for a patient, um, in the UK and other European countries, then it would make sense, I guess, that the, the, the training required. Um, you know, for surgeons to be able to do this procedure, your training in the UK might be slightly different than that in the US yeah. in terms of the anesthesia. So, is that something where you will be involved in training in this procedure? You know, overseas. Um, sort of. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm already doing that. Um, I, I've operated in Brazil and Hungary and uh, Australia, far overseas. <laughs> Um, and, you, and you do do these things as part of you know what, what you do because people are interested. I'm always interested in how other surgeons operate under what circumstances and how the patients get over the surgery and, and what sort of outcomes we get. And I, I've been to I've visited Greg probably half a dozen times now in America, and I've never ever ever seen anybody put at risk. And so you know I'm, I'm very pleased to associate myself with what's going on. Certainly with Greg, because he's a great guy and a great surgeon. Um, but one can imagine the, the situation where, where people are put at risk. So you have to be responsible and you have to be sort of shown how to do it. And you have to be willing to accept that what you think is, is the better way of doing it isn't necessarily the way that, that it's best done. Um, and, and from my training days, I can remember that I was taught a lot of things which now I don't do because I feel as though they were wrong. I've adapted it my way. Greg's technique is the way he does it. And I'd be the first to say that, you know, we can adapt his technique. He's very comfortable with his, the way he does his anesthetics and the, the way he um, manages all of his pre- and post-operative care. Uh, I just happen to be very comfortable with the way I do it as well, which is ever so slightly different. I have to say, though, the actual surgery, the idea of the suture, is what I'm going to practice. That's what I'm going to do, because I actually, I've done it the old way. I've done it my own way. This way is better, much better than what it was before. Mm, that's great. That's great. And then, who would be the ideal um, surgeons to be performing this technique over in the UK? Yeah, the, you probably realise there's a turf war been going on for the last thirty years, uh, which is absolutely <laughs> unnecessary. I know we um, have it here too. <laughs> yeah. Plastic surgeons, by and large, don't own a right to do cosmetic surgery, uh, and I think we all have to accept that now. <laughs> Um, it's, it's happening, though, in Australia, in England, and in the United States, that the junior surgeons have recognised they're not being trained in cosmetic surgery. So if we take the fact that most newly qualified plastic surgeons are inexperienced and they're going to learn on the hoof, what they're best advised to do is to go and see somebody that actually does this type of technique and actually receive the training. Then it's incumbent upon people like me to say, look, I'm not just going to train plastic surgeons. I'm willing to train head and neck surgeons, oral surgeons, anybody that's interested in doing safe surgery that I think is competent enough to do it. And I happen to have trained such surgeons and all sorts of techniques over the last 10 years. And I can tell you some of the general surgeons are as good as the plastic surgeons, but they don't have quite the same ego. I've got plastic surgeons I've had to teach how to scrub up properly. I've got plastic surgeons I've had to stop feeding themselves in the dining room when they're supposed to be down watching what we're doing in surgery. You know, not, not everybody is a great student and the, the 
the higher your ego, the worse you can be sometimes. Um, in our world, we have to be humble. We have to be careful. We have to be protective uh, as a vulnerable patient. And the biggest problem I think people are going to get into is when they choose a vulnerable patient of which they have no chance of getting a good outcome. We have to be highly selective. If we're highly selective, we'll be safe, both as in our practices, but more importantly for the patient. So the last thing anybody wants to do is harm a patient. And, and I have to say, I've never seen Greg operate on anybody that didn't think he could help. And I've always tried to do the same thing in my own clinical practice. Now, I'm happy to turn people away if they're not right. And the sort of uh, the people you wouldn't want to work on with this, you have to think carefully, are people with small mandibles, hypoplastic mandibles. Some of those people are better served with a little chin implant with or without this procedure. Some people with very, very big turkey necks will not be great with this procedure. Um, people with very old, very heavy skin will not do well with any surgical procedure on face or neck. You can get improvement, but you won't get any form of perfection. And if you think the patient's thinking they're going to get that, then you mustn't do the surgery. Um, and so there is a bit of a compromise. You've got to be aware of your potential outcome in every individual patient, which won't be the same. Now, if you get a young person, like, like Greg shows on a couple of his videos, you will always get a nice result. You will never get a bad result unless something unforeseen were to happen, like you got an infected suture or something, which I happen to say is a very rare event anyway. So it's unlikely you'll get a bad, bad result on a young person. But others would argue, well, it's a young person, why are you doing it anyway? But, you know, you ask the person why you're doing it, and they quite clearly know what it is that upsets them. And if you can help somebody with low-risk surgery, then there's absolutely no reason why you can't do it, in my opinion. Hmm. Great answer. <laughs> Great answer. Well, let's just for the last couple of minutes on the show talk about patient um you know, the patient expectations, patients after the procedure, um, you know, length of recovery and that type of thing. Can you kind of walk us through that? What should yeah. the patient expect? So, right. So th this is where another little tool that Greg Muller's developed with Ted Gagliano, which is the um, OVIO camera, it's the OVIO OVIO camera. It's a 360 camera. And the best thing we ever got was actually that camera in the United Kingdom. Because what you do is you put the patient through a 360-degree visual thing. They can see what they're like prior to the operation. And you talk over every single issue of, of what is there, because it's not always the neck. And, and then you've got to think about, well, if you do the neck, what's it going to do to another area? How are you going to balance the face? And you can actually build up a little plan of, you know, if you do this, what could then happen? And if you, if you can persuade them, do your neck, stick with your neck, then that's great. This camera enables you to, to be able to, to have a big discussion in detail over a picture of somebody that's her or him, but actually they can, re they can relate to it, but it's not really them. And, and if they can see those issues uh, and then you do the surgery, you then put them through the same camera and you can see the improvement that you've made. And then you know, virtually all of the things you've, you've gained through experience to understand what then becomes the main issue uh, feature. So you can expect, for example, if you just did a neck, to think about whether you need to do a lower facelift at some stage, to do a flick lift, to do fat graft, or to put fillers, uh, or, or even to think about what will happen long-term to your neck or face. How will you age over the next 20 years? Uh, and all of those things you can actually put together through this camera system. It's absolutely an amazing resource. And, and I, my view is everybody, we should all use this sort of imagery if we really want to operate on patients. Because there are undeniably people that are going to come back to see you saying you didn't make any difference. 
But as soon as you get your camera out, they say, oh, my God, you've made a huge difference. Mm. Uh, and, and the still camera images aren't really much help. It doesn't really show you animating. It doesn't show you expressing. It doesn't show you smiling or grimacing. And it doesn't show the hollows in your temples when you, you, you clench your teeth together. It doesn't show the glands going up. So the, the real-time uh, video camera showing animation is a phenomenal resource. So when I'm talking to patients, you know, I bring all of this up and then we talk about it. And then usually there's a second consultation and because after that time they've had a moment to think about what the options are. Because nearly always there's two or three options. Um, and if, if people are after too much, then the second consultation usually um, highlights it. Uh, it's quite nice to have a member of their family or friend or relative there as well, just so we can all go over it so we all know what we're trying to achieve and, uh, and how we get there. And generally speaking, if you do that type of work, uh, you, you're in it together, you and the patient, and you forget the money. It's not the cost. The, the cost itself is one thing. But actually, if you forget that and divorce yourself from that, you're actually trying to help somebody that thinks they've got a little bit of a problem. Can you help them? The answer is yes or no. If you can, here's the best way of doing it. And then working together, generally speaking, you don't get unhappy clients. Hmm, that's great. And then in terms of, if, like, after this procedure for the patient, like I know you said... You know, when you've seen, um, you know, with, with Dr. Greg Mueller's patients here in the in the USA, you know, his patients pretty much, you know, within a day or two seem to be going back to work and, you know, yeah. living life normally, yeah, yeah. of course. I'm, you know, I'm sure yeah. there's some, you know, restrictions in terms of exercise and lifting and things. But how about in with your patients? Are you seeing a similar... Yeah, well, I, I've... Um, Greg and I, we, we talked about it a long time ago, but... Effectively, in the old days, we used to put bandages and big things on to immobilize patients. But what we soon realized is if you stiffen up somebody's neck, it takes ages to get it going again. So we, we like them to move a bit, but not to the extreme that it puts tension on the so uh, sutures or knots. So we, we like to protect the, um, the whole thing with a, with a uh, cervical collar, which is a little neck collar, which the patient can take on and off any time they like. But to try and, if they are in everyday life, make sure they don't turn 90 degrees with their head. Um, or, or eat big uh, forkfuls of fish and chips. You know, you, you don't want to open the mouth to it. You want to just rest everything in, get the swelling down. And if you can get it to swell, get the swelling down without induration, you'll get a very early and quick result. So between two and three weeks, basically, you're back to virtually normal activity. But really what's going on in there is going on for about six to eight weeks. You know, the, the sutures are bedding down. They're actually getting a degree of scar around them. They're holding the position you want them to be. And they're becoming strong. You know, with tissue adhesion at about eight weeks. So you've got to be careful for that six to eight weeks, but it doesn't stop you doing things. And if you're combining it with mini facelifts and things, which obviously Greg does and I do, um, there's very low downtime with those. If you, as a woman, wear your hair down, you can often get away without anybody knowing you've had a mini facelift because you're not mobilizing the face anymore. You're not, you've got those stitches around the eyes. You haven't done a nose with plaster. You've worked on the neck with a little neck collar, and you've got the wounds in front of the ear so you, you could go back to work and you know very very soon after even the next day and I've got lots of mums for example that pick the kids up from school the same day it's not that difficult or dangerous hmm, that's great that's great um, well lastly um, you know I, I do understand there's a little issue with the CE in the Europe but how excited are you um, when all of that goes through to be able to offer this procedure and train in the UK uh, well We've been waiting for this tool for a good few years now, a good few years. And, and the frustration has built up to the point that we thought the CE mark was coming through in August. And I actually had booked up a load of my patients to have this live surgery, which I was going to do, and I was going to 
shuttle across to Greg so he could pass comment um, during the procedures. Um, we are very, very excited. We've got lots of people waiting for the operation, lots. And, and it's actually quite difficult now to say, look, we can't give you a date when this stuff is coming through. And people are going to be soon looking for the alternative, which unfortunately means open neck surgery, which increases risk. Now, I don't mind doing that surgery, but in my opinion, it's second best. It's not the best way forward. We should be doing this minimally invasive. It is invasive, but it's minimally invasive, low-risk, high-reward surgery. We can always do the others if it doesn't work, but my view is I don't think we're going to be in that position. I think the vast majority of patients are going to get a great result. That's great. That's great. Well, Professor Frame, thank you so much for being on the Aesthetic Insider Radio. Um, yeah, I would love to have you back on as a guest in the future, possibly after you're really well underway with to. the CE Mark and with the training. Um, for our listeners out there, is there any way that you would like a telephone number or website you would like them to visit to learn more about you? Oh, it's, I've got a website, but you know, I'm not one to sort of sell myself. But if anyone wants to get a hold of me, it's a simple email address. It's j.frame at btinternet.com. Um, I can be got through the university. I can be got through my private sector. You have my, that number, um, and I'm very happy to help you in any way. I, my, the, the, um, we, we offer a training course to plastic surgeons in the United Kingdom, uh, which unfortunately uh, has been... Let, let, let's say it's been scotched because not many plastic surgeons think they need to learn cosmetic surgery, which is the <laughs> travesty which we're seeing both in this continent and Australia and also in, um, in the United States. Once you've got your, your registration, you think you're okay to go, and that's where the danger is. And I think you know, if, if we were really responsible as an organization to say that you shouldn't be doing this till you're properly trained, you should at least have a mentor when you start your early years as a plastic surgeon. Uh, and that's why I think people starting to do this type of work just need a mentor, just for the first two or three, just so they know they're doing it correctly. And I have to say that the best guy to do that in the United Kingdom is a guy called Peter Cranstone, who actually is the guy that's going to be the, the distributor of the product. Because he's been in this game now for 30 years. He knows exactly which surgeons are good and which are bad, and who's, who's the one he's not going to sell the product to. He's going to make sure that product goes to the good surgeons so we get the great results, which we know can happen. That's great. That's great. And then for those listeners that would like to learn more about um, about Elevate, they can go to www.myelevate.com, and uh, hopefully, you know, some of the training and the things that we're talking about will be on that website. Well, Professor Frame, again, thank you so much for being on Aesthetic Insider Radio. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to invite me, Angela. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.